This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, East Sanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hszc.org. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, as always, I'm really uh, pleased to be here, and uh, this being the darkest, darkest day of the year, pretty close. Maybe yesterday and today are the same. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, what I uh, what I wanted to talk about um, was the same old thing, but uh, we find it important and necessary to talk about it in different ways and the title of the talk is uh, taken from a talk that Suzuki Roshi gave on the Genjo Koan. Probably was quite a while ago. Uh, his earliest talks are 1961 that I'm aware of. Uh, and uh, I don't know the date of this particular one, but I, I would quote a few of the things that he said about it and um, see where else that leads. Um, you know, the Genjo Koan uh, starts out with a phrase, when all things are without self. And um, one of Suzuki's comments on that idea is that the Buddha way is beyond being and non-being. Well, that sounds pretty lofty and uh, perhaps not much consolation a lot of the time. Um, but uh, I think what's intended there actually is, uh, you know, sort of, I think it points to something uh, that is a comfort um, because I think of all of the um, Shobogenzo, all of Dogen's work to be basically commenta commentaries on the life of meditation or sitting practice. So he's talking about that experience and how it informs the rest of what we're up to. And uh, Suzuki was a product of a really uh, a very lengthy, complex uh, tradition of Buddhist practice, and he was very aware of not just his own lineage in the Soto way, but he was very well versed in the other schools of Buddhism, and um, so. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of the Japanese history of Buddhism, there was a lot of not just controversy, but conflict between the various sects. Uh, but Dogen found uh, much to appreciate about uh, the Pure Land schools, and um, Suzuki comments on that. 
when he's talking about Buddhist practice, he says, we know each thread and we know the whole cloth. Zen and Pure Land, all part of one beautiful cloth. Each school is just a piece of thread. I am just a thread in a beautiful cloth. Our way has two facets. One, the true meaning of religion, and the other, each school and its own particular style. But he goes on to say what I think is most interesting. Without knowing how to make ourselves useful, having some lofty activity doesn't make much sense. The emphasis of his talk goes on to say, it is people who are ignorant of enlightenment. When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they are not necessarily aware that they are Buddhas. To advance ourselves and understand all things is ignorance. That things advance and understand themselves is enlightenment. When we have no particular idea of good and bad, we expose ourselves and accept criticism. This, that is enlightenment. I think what's really interesting is that um, he actually refers a lot to what we don't know. And he puts a real high value on it. You know, for example, Suzuki said in this talk, I believe, you know, possibly 99% of our life is unconscious. And I think that um, my own feeling is that, uh, is that uh, sitting practice is a way of reaching into that unconscious area and benefiting from it in ways that we are really not clearly aware of, not, perhaps not at all aware of, and um, that, is, um, that is pretty intriguing. I think when practice, you know, begins to unfold, when you begin to notice things on your own, is when uh, you find that you're getting away from the ideas of practice and you're finding some texture in your own life that is um, interesting or surprising. So, um, he goes on to say, what is the true expression of yourself? The conscious or the unconscious one. The two statements are actually about ignorance and enlightenment. We are a box containing both. You cannot escape ignorance, which is to say you cannot escape the inevitable mistakes and disappointments of your life. 
because enlightenment doesn't occur anywhere else. Dogen said, it is Buddhas who understand ignorance, their own ignorance. About what have we attained enlightenment? We've we, have we have attained enlightenment about ignorance. What you actually grasp, what you actually experience, are your mistakes. The way I used to um, express that one to myself is, when I think about my life in practice over the years, I just see how I was mistaken. So um, uh, when I began, I had a lot of idealistic energy and a, and a, and a lot of um, ambition. And I found that um, what I was interested in and what I was ambitious about wasn't at all interesting to other people. They simply didn't notice it, or perhaps they did notice and were polite enough not to comment on it. But um, anyway, what I, what I think of the, the years that I spent at Zen Center, particularly in the early days, was a kind of a heroic effort. And um, I didn't really realize that um, what is called compassion is actually just connection. It's just um, your, your ability to appreciate other people with, with or without language, your ability to uh, you know, empathize or sympathize, and so, um, eventually I began to notice that my fascination with practice was really kind of thin. There's, there wasn't a lot of satisfaction in my, you know, churning around with the idea of, am I getting traction here? Am I getting the idea? Am I getting respect? Um, but I, I certainly uh, began to notice that there were people around me, maybe more vividly than before, who had tremendous gifts. Their particular simplicity, their sense of humor, their honesty, or their confusion um, can be quite encouraging. Uh, I had a wonderful friend uh, early on at Zen Center, who was quite an eccentric person. And uh, he was a little too eccentric to continue as a Zen student. Uh, he was probably a resident of the Page Street building and a might have worked at the bakery for a period of time in those years. <coughs> and he uh, he just got to be a little too strange 
And so he could no longer maintain a work relationship with Zen Center. But he was still a resident and seemed to be sort of harmless. And uh, one of his self-support efforts was, uh, because he'd been working at the bakery for a while, he thought, well, I, I will bake cookies. So he decided to get into the cookie making business and was using the snack kitchen at Page Street to bake the cookies. And um, that seemed to be pushing the outer edge of what was going to be acceptable. But uh, I, I knew him during that time and he went from there to living on the street. And he was well trained. He was kind of a monk at heart, pretty serious practitioner, a poet. And he, uh, uh, he had a little bit of self, uh, uh, other support in the form of his parents would send him a check from time to time, a small amount. And he asked me to be his banker. So I would cash the checks and then he'd come by from time to time when he was living on the street. And, uh, uh, you know, get a $20 advance on his stipend. So, I really enjoyed his company. Occasionally he would stop by my place for a shower. And he also uh, occasionally would leave a note or a poem pinned to my door. I don't know about you, but I don't get too many people sending me poetry on any regular basis. And so, not only was I pleased by the attention, but I was delighted by the quality of what he was saying. I occasionally would take him on my work rounds. He was interested in what I was up to. I'm a builder, or was, and so I take him to job sites a little bit. We look around. And on his days when he wasn't feeling too strong, he had this um, a tendency, but a kind of a desire to be invisible, which I could really empathize with. I certainly feel that way often enough. So I remember one particular day we were in uh, in the greengrocer, and he didn't want to. He didn't feel it social enough to want to go in the greengrocer and mill around and interact with people, but he sort of came just through the front door, but he was trying to be invisible. And when you're trying to be invisible, you kind of stand out a little bit. So that was that. And eventually I did lose track of him, but I think I must have known him for at least, uh, you know, five or six years. And what I valued about him was his, his sincerity and his, uh, palpable wrestling with his confusion and his suffering, and to some degree including me in it. You know, these are, this is what I'm up against and this is what I'm feeling. But he would say that in a poem, so much more, in some sense, satisfying and revelatory. One of the things that I, in a sense, have a 
um, a sort of a schizophrenic relationship with is all the, the history, the Zen history of the saints and sages that we refer to, you know, the great teachers and so forth. And when you study koans, you will, you know, you will encounter these phrases. But because I don't know these people personally, and I don't know the situation, I don't know what led up to it, etc. It may or not have a lot of texture or meaning to me. Not to say that I'm being dismissive of koans. My own feeling about koans is that basically when you respond to koans you're describing yourself. But I've often thought that it's much more really appropriate to appreciate the Buddhas in your own life. And I've known a few, and um, at least they were for me. Growing up in Chicago, I had a minister who was a passionate congregational minister and wanted to connect with the black community, which was just north of us. And that was such a controversial idea that he was fired by the congregation. When I was working in the uh, industrial heartland in a paint factory in Chicago, there was one particular person who took really very vivid and palpable pride in himself and the work he was doing. And so um, in the paint factory, he ran a filling line and the machine that puts paints into cans, the other two lines were just basically encrusted in paint. They would operate and function, but it was sort of looked like the industrial dark ages. His machine was immaculate. And when the line would slow down because something would go wrong, he would be very anxious to address the problem and keep it going just because that was just doing a good job as far as he was concerned. I had a teacher in college who was just a, what we called a section man and who was probably the funniest and most creative teacher I've ever had. And he went on to, uh, I think, work for the mayor of Boston and then be elected to the House of Representatives as the first gay uh, representative in, uh, openly gay. And so Barney Frank was someone I always felt kind of honored to have known and appreciated. They're the usual folks that everybody that everybody cites at Zen Center. And then there are other people that we in our culture, I think many people have recognized as true bodhisattvas, whether anyway for me my particular list is Muhammad Ali and uh, Bob Dylan and Abraham Lincoln and Obama and Mandala. Interestingly, I noted that um, there's more written about Lincoln than anyone else in history other than Christ and Shakespeare. He's right, right up there. And I've been rereading a biography of his by Sandberg. And the amount of suffering he absorbed 
and the amount of grace that he conducted his affairs with. The accounts seem pretty much endless, the amount of patience he exhibited with people who were oblivious to who they were dealing with. Anyway, those are the kind of folks that I find actually help, you know, pull me along. To refer back just a little bit to the, the Genjo Koan, I'll quote a little bit from Suzuki. It's particular, for me, a particularly charming passage. A student asked about the oneness of duality, and I had no time to discuss it with him. I wanted to help, but I knew that I could not. Until he suffers, until he tries to find out for himself what is oneness of duality, it will take a pretty long time. By long effort, his understanding will improve. You will reach this kind of understanding by suffering in your actual life and by considering your life or by practicing Zazen. Then he goes on to quote the Genjo Koan. When you see things and hear things with our whole body and mind, our understanding is not like a mirror ref with reflections, nor like water under the moon. If we understand one side, the other side is dark. This is Shikantaza. Then for me, what's one of the great consolations, he goes on to say, these lines are impossible. You cannot do anything with them. It takes a long time to understand this. Without any idea of enlightenment or ignorance, when we do something, the other side is dark and go beyond ourselves. And he just talks about he goes on to talk about the contradictions, the contradictions that we endlessly experience in sitting practice. He said, when you're ho at home, you think you should be sitting. When you're sitting, you think you might be elsewhere. When you think about yourself, well, you want to be someone else or some slightly improved version. And he just refers to this as, you're just going back and forth. He goes on and describes it, beautiful moon, very busy moon. He also says, you cannot solve the problems of your life just by sitting. You may say so, but it means that you are trying to watch both sides, up and down. Pretty busy. In that way, your practice will not work. If you say, I have to sit, that's all, period. There's no need for you to think about the meaning of zazen. If you just sit, it will work out beautifully. One other thought that I had uh, 
that I ran across in the Abhatamsaka Sutra, uh, which is intriguing to me. Uh, it's a very elaborate, repetitive, Baroque thing. But in the midst of all that sort of rippling word and sound, there is the expression, understanding uh, is not so important. What gives possibility and support is your lineage, your Buddha family. So I would just say that we have been extremely fortunate uh, in that we have found somehow or other a practice community is based on the, really the simplicity and the humility of Suzuki's way. In conclusion, what I wanted to mention are just a few of the koans that uh, I've appreciated that have been spoken by people I know. Uh, Jerry Fuller is someone I've mentioned probably in the past, was a carpenter of my era. And uh, in a dessert phase of one particular memorable meal at Green Gulch, he said, it's never too much until it's too late. And uh, Paul Disco, the master builder at Zen Center, in response to a Shusou question, said, in response to the question, what is Zazen? He said, I don't know what Zazen is, but it includes everything. Isan, your founder, at one point said, just to have AIDS is to be alive. And Philip Whalen, at his, I don't know, Shusou ceremony or Shosan ceremony, I guess you might have heard it, but I can't resist it. Why is everyone enlightened but me? <laughs> Our founder, Shunryu Suzuki said, I don't believe in anything. So that's, that's the thoughts of the moment. I'd be very interested in hearing any of yours, uh, anything that stirs the pot or seems of interest. David. Uh, one thing you said that stood out for me was uh, that quote of uh, Suzuki Roshi's, uh, I have to paraphrase it because I can't remember it exactly, but it was that, um, um, you know, we think that Zazen's going to be the answer, that we're going to get what we need or whatever from it. And um, that is really hard to let go of. I agree. I mean, you know, 40 years, still there. I agree. <laughs> it's quite interesting. It, the baggage might get slightly lighter. You know, I might say, I might go so far as to say that, but still there. And I don't know that that's necessarily a mistake. Yeah. That's the thing, you know. I mean, it is true that our, some of our great moments are, extend out of delusion. And the sincerity of sitting counts for a great deal, regardless of what we think about it. Mm 
you know that's that's intriguing to me recently because uh, one of the adventures of I've been on sabbatical for the last four months because I had a knee replacement and uh, so I couldn't sit really and I'm working my way back to you know building up a little bit of endurance and um, in the process what I notice is, you know, Zazen for me for many years has been a kind of a refuge. You know, you can kind of click into a kind of autopilot and it's comfortable and time, who knows, it may go on forever, it may disappear. But at any rate, it's a feeling of ease. Now, I'm not experiencing any of that. So in order to endure the period, I'm counting. Now, I didn't used to be able to count which is to say I didn't have the motivation or somehow related and connect, but now I can count enough because I'm interested in how long is this going to last. <laughs> it's embarrassing, but I can stand it. And uh, yet I'm reminded of a phrase from Suzuki's talk about Zazen. He says, to assume the cross-legged posture um, and attempt to maintain your, your posture and your breathing is complete. That your attempt to achieve a particular state of mind is a mistake. You already have the right state of mind. And that, you know, that takes decades to accept. To me, that's the mystery. You know, we are always trying to tune it up. Always, oh, this should be a little better, I should be a little something, whatever, whatever, whatever. But I think the exposure to that is the medicine. It's a delusion. It's not necessarily helpful, but we who have experienced that, uh, I think there is a mysterious kind of benefit beyond all the, all the mysteries. Um, I think one of the things that we often begin to notice when we sit is somehow or other the, the struggle, uh, the confusion of others. Perhaps we're less sympathetic, perhaps we're more, but we do notice. Uh, one, of the th uh, one of the things that I've commented on, I'm sure repeatedly and maybe here before is, we all know people that talk a lot. And one of the things that occurs to me is that they talk a lot because they don't hear themselves. Because if they heard themselves, they would be bored stiff. That's one of our benefits. Now, not to say that, you know, uh, Zazen will save you, but it, it will alert you. And that's, that's a good thing. Anything else? I hope I haven't kept you too long. That's probably plenty. Anyway, thank you very much. <laughs>